does God have us here? Mm -hmm. Why does he have us here? And as we look, I'm sure as you look back and I know when I look back, I'm like, well, he was working through me. He was building something in me and I was there for a purpose and it wasn't just to make money. Right. It was there to influence children, influence my coworkers and really start to, you know, prepare for the future as well because my last job obviously prepare, uh, prepare me for this job that I got this year. And, um, and it's a calling, like you can't just go into a certain field and just expect to be successful if the Lord has not purposely put you there. Right. For me, it's like, if I didn't feel called there, if I didn't feel like, um, a lot of my giftings are being used there. Um, and if I didn't feel, I guess, passionate about what I did, um, it would really be hard to find motivation. Um, I do understand sometimes people just like have to find a job to like right. make ends meet. So they can't really, you know, find something that they're passionate or something that they really want to do. Um, but even then I feel like, you know, especially in even those scenarios, it's like, well, um, if, if you don't feel like this is where God needs you to be, like yeah. you could just, with all the pressures yeah. of especially American work specifically, it's very success driven, very like get to the top driven, very right. like work a lot of hours right. all the time. That's mm-hmm. the way the American work system is set up. Good morning. How's the third service going today? Good. All right. Some of you have been here the whole time, I think. A couple of you. Um, well, if this is your first time at City Life Church, we want to welcome you. My name is Scott Fiddler. I'm one of the elders here at City Life Church. And along with uh, Eric Stevens, I am holding down the fort because our pastor, Chris Pate, and two of our elders are off in Israel. And if you've been around for a while, you know that uh, we go to Israel quite a lot. We have a lot of trips to Israel. In fact, we're thinking about starting a shuttle service from Houston to Tel Aviv and working something out with the city. You can use your metro card. You just swipe it. You ride on on your way to Tel Aviv. Uh, But no, we go there a lot because we have uh, one of our elders, Ji Yoon, actually leads a tour there. And if you've never done it, it's a a life-changing experience. So that's where they are. So you're stuck with me today. And if you came uh, to see our pastor, unfortunately, you've got... Uh, a lawyer instead. But I want to talk to you about something that is uh, near and dear to my heart because I do it uh, most of my waking life, and that is work. And we're in a series right now called Don't Waste Your Work. And if you were here last week, uh, you know that Pastor Chris talked about the importance of work and the fact that we are made to work. We're made in the image of God. And so the first thing that we see God doing in Genesis chapter 1 is creating. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He's working. The very first way that he's revealed to us is is as working. And then we know uh, that he would put man in the garden and told him to keep it, and he told him to cultivate it. And that's work. So work is not a result of the curse. It's not a result of the fall. It's something... We were made to do. And in fact, Jesus said, my father is working until now and I am working. So work is not a bad thing. 
Now, it's become more complicated since the fall of man, and we're going to talk about that a little bit. But um, work is what we are made to do because we are made in the image of God. And when I, um, when I was coming out of law school, in fact, it was uh, the Christmas break before my last semester of law school, I was still trying to decide what I wanted to do, and I was pretty sure I was going to go into the full-time ministry. I wanted to go onto campus, onto the campus, and be a campus minister. And that may sound crazy to you. You may think, well, why would you squander a law degree to become a campus minister? And in fact, I'd gone down to Florida to raise support, so I wasn't even going to be paid for it. I was going to have to raise my own support in order to do it. But to the uh, great relief of my parents, who had paid for my law school education, uh, I came to my senses, and I did not go into the full-time ministry, and instead I became a lawyer. And after I became a lawyer, I began to think about, well, what does it mean uh, to do work on behalf of the Lord? Because the reason I wanted to go into the full-time ministry was because I wanted to change the world. I wanted to do something that was important. And the most important thing that I could think of that was most important to King Jesus was leading people to the Lord and minister to them and helping change their lives. That seemed to me to be more important than practicing law. So I struggled with this. And for a while, for a long period of time, in fact, and you may feel the same way, I kind of felt like a second-class citizen in the kingdom. And this is not because of anything pastors did intentionally, but kind of the impression I got was, good, you're a lawyer, you can make good money as a young professional, and then you can finance the kingdom. Somebody's got to pay for, you know, what Jesus wants to do on earth, and that's good. You can give to the church, you can volunteer when you have time. Um, and that was kind of what it felt like that I was, you know, that, that was part of what being a lawyer was in the kingdom. And that was about the best explanation I could find anywhere. And when you think of it like that, it's kind of like being a second-class citizen. I mean, if you remember the movie A Few Good Men, there's that scene where Kiefer Sutherland says to Tom Cruise, oh, yeah, we don't have any problem with the Navy. He says, whenever we have to go fight somewhere, you boys take us there. It's almost like, yeah, you get us where we need to go, you finance it, but we're going to be the ones on the front line doing the fighting. Okay? And that's what it felt like to me um, as, you know, as, a, as a young lawyer, that really I wasn't on the front lines because I didn't really understand. And maybe you felt the same way. Maybe you've got a good job. Maybe it pays really well. And at first, that was enough. And you uh, were excited about the job. But then, you know, you kind of get used to those zeros on your paycheck, you know, or when you look in your bank account. And it, you just kind of get used to it. And the newness wears off. And then you just kind of get bored with your job. And you think, okay, I get it. But there must be more to it than this. Or maybe you're burdened with feeling like you need to be witnessing at work, right? I mean, we're all supposed to make disciples, and that's, that's absolutely true. It's the Great Commission. But then you know you're at work, and you know you're being paid by your employer to work and not to witness. But the Great Commission says that we're supposed to witness, and so there's like this tension. And you don't want to break the Eighth Commandment, which says, Thou shalt not steal. You don't want to steal time from your employer but you want to also carry out the Great Commission. And so there's this, this tension, and what do you do with that? Or maybe your job just seems menial, and maybe it just doesn't seem very important, and you can't understand how it matters in the larger scheme of the kingdom of God. Well, if 
our work, in fact, we do one-third of our waking life, one-third of our life is spent actually working, you would think there would be more to it than just a way to finance the kingdom, that God must have a greater purpose to it, and he does, in fact. And so today we're going to talk about two things. We're going to talk about finding meaning in your work apart from witnessing and sharing the gospel, which are all good, and building relationships, all good. But those things don't justify our work. We're going to talk about today what God's kingdom purpose is for what we do. But in order to get there, uh, we're going to have to move pretty quickly. So we're going to hop on a plane. We're going to go up to 30,000 feet. We're going to take a high view at 600 miles an hour. Hopefully it's not a Boeing 737 MAX with bad software and we don't crash. But then we're going to come over our target. We're going to circle it for a little while. We're going to drill down. And then we're going to land the plane. But we're going to look at why is our work important. And then if our work is important, if it truly is important in the kingdom of God, then there must be some instructions about how we're to do it. And so we're going to touch on just a couple of those commands that have to do with our work. So in order to take the high view, the view from 30,000 feet, the big picture of why we're here and what God's up to, we have to go back to the beginning. Like Chris talked about last week, when God put Adam in the garden, it was for a purpose. The Garden of Eden was a paradise. It had a river running through it, unending supply of fresh water. It had trees that were good. It says for fruit, every kind of fruit, and pleasing to the eye. So it wasn't just purely functional. This was a garden that was good for provision, and it was beautiful. It was a paradise on earth. But it wasn't supposed to end there because the Lord told Adam, he said, go out into the earth, subdue it, and take dominion over it. So the earth was like, was like a, uh, a canvas with different colors of paint on it, this blobs of paint on it, but the artist hadn't really painted the picture yet. And that's what Adam was supposed to do. Adam and Eve were to go out into the world, take the blueprint of the garden and impose that order on the earth. And of course, we know what happened was man rebelled against God and things got messed up and they never were after that the way they were intended to be. And one way to look at how the world got so messed up and what's wrong with the world is what we call the four separations. And the idea is <clears throat> that you can summarize basically what's wrong with the world, what's been wrong with the world since the fall with these four concepts. First, that man has been separated from God. And we know this because when God showed up in the garden looking for Adam, Adam ran from him. And he'd never run from him before. So the reason he ran was, was the first time he ever ran because he felt separated from God because of his sin. And so then God asked him why he ran. And he said, because I was naked and I was ashamed. And so we see man for the first time feeling guilt and shame and insecurity. So man is separated from himself. And since then, people have struggled with these insecurity and low self-esteem and guilt and shame and all these mental health problems, all these things that are not the way man was created. And then, of course, the Lord asked Adam, he said, what did you do? He said, the woman you gave me, she gave me from the tree to eat. So you have the first relational problems. Man is separated from man. And then you have the fourth separation, which is that man is separated now from nature. The Lord said to Adam, 
Because of what you've done from now on, the earth is going to bring forth thorns and thistles. And you're going to work the ground by the toil. You're going to have to toil by the sweat of your brow because it's going to be difficult now. The world's not going to work the way it was intended because of what you've done. And this virus that we call sin has permeated all of creation. It's, it's permeated human beings and it's permeated the, the animal kingdom, which was supposed to be made to be helpmates or friends or pets. For men, now they're wild animals. And it, if you're careful and you approach one, they might even kill you. You know, it's not the way it was supposed to be. The world is messed up. That's what's wrong with the world in a nutshell. So the question is, how do you fix it? How does God, what's God's solution to fixing what's wrong with the world? Well, if something's broken, if something's been broken, how do you fix it in the most simplistic terms? You put it back together, right? If something's been separated, you put it back together. You make it back into what it was supposed to be. And this putting back together, there's a word for it. It's called reconciliation. That's the business that God is in, is in the business of reconciliation. Sometimes we call it redemption, making things into what they were intended to be from the beginning, redeeming them from a broken state into a renewed state. Now, there are a lot of scriptures that we could look at, and we just don't have time, so I'll look at one, because remember, we're flying at 30,000 feet at 600 miles an hour. 2 Corinthians 5.18, it says, God reconciled us to himself, and he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So God's a reconciler, but if we read in 1 Corinthians 15, if we read in Hebrews, what we would see is that once Jesus was resurrected, he went away, he went away to the right hand of the Father, and the Bible says he's doing something there. It says he's waiting. Y'all ever notice that? It says he's waiting. It says he's waiting for all of his enemies to be put under his feet, which is the kingdom of God is voluntary. So God doesn't impose his, himself on anybody. It's voluntary. But he was using a term that, the, that in the Roman culture they would have understood. And the idea was that he's sitting at the right hand of the Father and he's going to redeem the earth because as people give themselves voluntary, voluntarily to the Lord and follow him, then things in their life become redeemed and reconciled to God. But Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, so how is he going to reconcile the earth? He does it through us because he gives us the ministry of reconciliation. It's almost like he said, okay, you broke it, you fix it. But the good news is he doesn't leave us alone. He works through us. He empowers us by the Holy Spirit, and he works through us as his delegated agents on earth to bring reconciliation. So now when you look at that in the context then of the four separations, you can see how we can get this dualistic or this bifurcated view of the ministry being like sacred work and everything else that everybody else does is kind of second class. Because what, what do people in the ministry do? They help people get redeemed to God, right? They minister to people, they pastor them, they help them with their relationships. So three of the four separations are handled by ministers. I mean, that's what Chris does. He helps people get reconciled to God. He'll minister to you, pastor you, help you with your problems, help you with your marriage. And so where does that leave the rest of us? Because that's, even though we may do that on a part-time basis, we may do that in the evenings when we meet with people and sometimes, you know, building relationships at work, that's not primarily what work is about. 
But we never talk about the fourth thing, which is man's separation from nature, which is another way of describing everything else that's wrong with the world. And so understanding the importance of your job starts with understanding that King Jesus is not just interested in redeeming people. He's interested in redeeming cultures and governments and the business world and athletics and every other part of the world. See, we're some, a lot of us have been taught that, that we just need to get right with God and then we just need to get off the planet as quickly as possible. But Psalm 24.1 says, it says, um, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the people and those who dwell therein. John 3.16, a verse you hear cited a lot, says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The word for world is cosmos. The Greek word is cosmos. It's not just talking about people. It's talking about God's creation. He's not, he's sure he's primarily interested in people, but he also wants to redeem the world. He wants the world to be made into the place that he originally intended. And he does that through our work. I'm an attorney. He wants justice on the earth. As a trial attorney, he doesn't show up in the courtroom and make my opening statement for me. I have to do that. But he does it through me because he wants justice on the earth. So he works through me as I'm obedient to him and I do my job ethically and excellently in obedience to him. And you can plug your job in there too. Martin Luther, the great reformer, was asked by a cobbler. Uh, many of you probably don't know what a cobbler is. <laughs> a cobbler is somebody who makes shoes. We don't have cobblers anymore. We have people in Pasadena who make chemicals and they ship them to China and then they ship them to what, Portland, Oregon, to Nike plant or whatever and they, they kick out shoes. It's a division of labor. But back then, you had cobblers and they made shoes. And so this cobbler becomes a Christian and he comes to Martin Luther and he says, Dr. Luther, what do I do now? And the idea was, the implication was, well, now that I've given my life to the Lord and I want to really be sold out to him, I must go into the full-time ministry, right? And Martin Luther said, surprisingly, make a good shoe and sell it at a fair price. And his point was that the cobbler was God's face to the world. It was God's means by which people who needed shoes would have their needs met. And so the job that you have, if you're a believer, the job that you have is the means by which God meets certain needs within our society as well. And that's no less important than his redemption of the other separations that we're talking about here as well. He wants to redeem the world. He wants it to function the way he intended he wants to manage the planet for his kingdom. And he does it through you and me. So when you become a Christian and you have a work, you have a job, and you have responsibility over people, places, and things, and you begin to see your job differently, and you think, well, I need to be better at this, and I need to treat my people better because that's what the Lord requires of me. Then the people who work for you, who work with you, who work around you, they get to enjoy the blessings of the kingdom of God. And they may be on kingdom territory. They may never go to heaven. But they still get to enjoy the blessings of the kingdom of God. Another way to say it is that our work is how God changes the world. 
It's how he cures injustices. It's how he cures poverty. It's how he cures diseases. It's how he makes the world into the place that he wants it to be. You know, leprosy was the most feared disease in the Bible. I mean, they had leper colonies. They had, I mean, there were rules in the law of God about how you approached lepers. Do you know we cured leprosy? About 30 years ago, found a cure for leprosy. And we'll find a cure for cancer. I don't know, maybe 200 years down the road before. Maybe it'll be 50 years. Hopefully it's sooner rather than later. But all these things that are messed up as a result of this virus of sin that infected creation, now the Lord wants to work through us in order to turn back the effects of the curse and redeem the earth to himself. And if we had time, we'd go through various occupations and give you some examples, but some of you are already thinking about your own job. Okay, how does the Lord work through me then? And you can get some ideas. You can start to understand the importance of what you do. Now, the Bible, if this is, what, if this is how important our work is, then you would expect that the Bible would say something about how we're supposed to do our jobs. And it does. And there are a number of places where it talks about how to do our, our work. We're going to look at we're going to look at two primarily, or two and a half. Um, and we're going, to pull two, we're going to pull two principles out of these passages of Scripture about how we're supposed to do our work, what's expected of us. Now that we understand the concept of a, the reason for our work, we need to understand how God expects us to work. And the first thing is uh, going to be found in this Scripture from Second Chronicles, and it's where Jehoshaphat is speaking to judges. This was a time when they were experiencing a renaissance in Israel. And so Jehoshaphat has some instructions for the judges. And this is about 850 BC. He says, consider what you are doing for you do not judge for man, but for the Lord who is with you when you render judgment. Now then let the fear of the Lord be upon you for the Lord our God will have no part in unrighteousness. Thus you shall do in the fear of the Lord faithfully and wholeheartedly. Now, if we fast forward 900 years, we get to the Apostle Paul. He's writing around 60 AD, and he's writing not to judges, not to the people who are considered the highest on the food chain in the work world, judges who are actually not just judges, not just deciding who should win court cases, but actually ruling. But now he's going to talk to those who are considered the lowest, the least desirable job in the world, which would be that of a servant or a slave. And he says to them, those in Colossae and those in Ephesus, he says, Slaves in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart. Fearing the Lord, whatever you do, do your work heartily. As for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. And then he says to the Ephesian slaves, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling, in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. Now, if we had time, what we would do, and this is one of the things we do in our, disciple, our work discipleship group that we do occasionally, is we would pull out seven different things that you could look at under what Jehoshaphat said and then what Paul also said that were substantially the same. And you've already seen some of them. As I'm reading this, you're seeing, you know, do your work for the Lord, do it wholeheartedly. You're seeing the similarities between the two. 
We're going to focus on two of them, but here's the big picture point, is that if the Lord through Jehoshaphat is giving instructions, and then Paul, uh, then through Paul, is giving instructions to slay while Jehoshaphat is giving them to judges, then what does that say about whether it applies to us, right? If it applies to the highest level job in society and the lowest, then it's fair to infer or to assume that it applies to all of us in between. So what we're going to do then is look at two things out of these scriptures that pertain to how we're supposed to do our work. And the first is to do your work sincerely. Now, as a trial lawyer, um, early on, I made the decision that I wanted to be the best trial lawyer that I could be. And so I began reading as many books as I could read about trying cases and what great trial lawyers did. And I went to what we call CLE or continuing legal education seminars with great lawyers. And I remember one of them said one time, he said, look, if you want to be a great lawyer, the most important thing you can do is to be sincere. He said, when you stand up in front of a jury and you're explaining the case and you're laying out the facts, they need to believe exactly what you're saying is true. He said, of all the things, he said, sincerity, sincerity above all things is the key. And if you can learn to fake that, you'll be a great lawyer. <laughs> now, he was joking. And the, rea the reality is, uh, as a trial lawyer, I, I've never tried to lie to a jury because you can't fool 12 people anyway. Um, so you might fool one, but you're not going to fool 12. Uh, so not, uh, obviously, that's just a joke. But the serious part of this is uh, that we are supposed to do our job sincerely. So if we look back at the scripture, we'll see where in the last sentence, Jehoshaphat says, thus you shall do in the fear of the Lord faithfully and wholeheartedly. In other words, um, you're supposed to be faithful to the job of a judge. And the, judge, uh, the job of a judge exists in order for justice to be done. And so in order to be faithful to, to that job, to do it sincerely, you need to do it for that reason. And so it goes on. We don't have this here, but it goes on later in that scripture to talk about, so don't take a bribe, in other words. You don't want to be motivated by something that's not other than the reason that job was created. And Paul says it like this with regard to slaves. He says, but don't do your job to merely please men, but do it with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. He says it to the Ephesians as well. Do your job with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service. Don't just, just don't do a good job when your master's looking. You need to do your job from the heart. Do it all the time to be sincere, to work from the heart. It speaks to understanding the intent for which your job exists and the purpose for which you're to do it. In Isaiah 29, 13, uh, the Lord says, this people honors me with their lips and with their words, but their heart is far from me. So God does not want insincere worship. He doesn't want just words coming out of our mouth without having our heart engaged and, and, and understanding why we're doing what we're doing. Insincere worship and insincere work are both unacceptable to God. Sincerity matters. We're supposed to do our work for the right reason. Now, the opposite of this is, is to do something in a duplicitous manner. In other words, to have different motives. So, um, the best example I can give you for this, people do their work. If you were to find 
one other reason that people do their work other than the reason for which that job is created, what would it be? Money, right? I don't really like what I do, but, you know, it pays well, whatever. Sometimes people do their work for self-esteem, right? I like being a lawyer. I like being a doctor because it makes me feel important. Um, but those are not the reasons the jobs of lawyers and doctors exist. The job of a doctor exists in order to heal people. The job of a lawyer exists in order to do justice if you're a trial lawyer. The job of a teacher exists in order to teach people, not to make the teacher feel important, not, obviously not for the money. Think about it this way. What if I told you, and this is not true, you all don't have to worry about this, but what if I told you that Pastor Chris really is just in this job as the pastor of our church for the money. That's primarily why he's doing it. It's not because he really is interested in seeing people reconciled to God, reconciled to themselves, or reconciled to others. You'd say, well, that's terrible. How could that be? You know, he ought to find another job then. But then when it comes to our jobs, we think that's perfectly okay. Is that because our jobs are not as important? Is that because his job is sacred and ours is not? But that's why we talked about what we talked about at the beginning. What you're doing is just as sacred and just as important as what a pastor does because you're involved in redeeming the earth and managing the planet for King Jesus. And so what you do deserves to be done for the reason that that job exists, not just for the money, not for your self-esteem, not because it makes you feel good or it gets you attention or furthers your career. You understand? Does this make sense? We make sense? Let me give you an example. I just... For the last six months, I've worked harder than I've ever worked in my life. It's been crazy. And it's not because of something that I planned. It's been a weird conflation of circumstances. Um, and as a result, I've been uh, a, a kind of an absentee elder. Fortunately, I've got a pastor who's shown me a lot of grace and an eldership that has taken up the slack and shown me a lot of grace. I've got a wonderful wife, an incredible wife, who's shown me lots of grace. But I've been working crazy hours, 10, 11 o'clock at night, then getting up at 4 in the morning in order to get stuff done before a deposition. And it's just, been, it's just been crazy, and it hasn't stopped. Now, I get paid very well for what I do. But I can tell you that if I was doing what I'm doing for the money, I would have been burned out months ago. But that's not the way I think of it. The way I think of it is, God wants to do justice through me and I'm doing a holy, sacred work, an important work, a kingdom work. And so when I think about how hard I have to work, I think about the Apostle Paul who's getting stoned and then carried out of the city and left for dead and all the things he went through. Doesn't look like he has a balanced lifestyle to me. And I'm thinking, I'm thinking, well, if, if what I'm doing can be as important as Paul, then I think I can handle it for a while longer because I know what I'm doing is significant. Just like what you do is significant as well. And that's what the Lord wants you to know this morning. There's a great movie. It's called Chariots of Fire. How many people have seen Chariots of Fire? Okay. Good on you, buddy. It's a great movie, isn't it? One of the greatest movies of all time. It, was, it got best picture in 1981. So this is not just some Christian movie. It was not made by Christians. 
But it's a great movie. It's based on a true story. It's about two runners, primarily, who ran in the 1924 Olympics in Paris. One is named Harold Abrams. He's Jewish. The other is Eric Little, who comes from a family of missionaries, and he's from Scotland. And the movie kind of contrasts their lives and why they run. And Harold Abrams, he runs because he feels slighted and discriminated against, which is understandable because he probably was in, in English society at that time. And he was out to prove something and more about himself than anything else. And so all that he was, his identity, his self-esteem was wrapped up in whether he won a race. And so he was afraid, scared to death of losing. You'll see in something we look at here later, you can see the fear in his eyes when he realizes what he's up against. And that's contrasted with Eric Little, who runs for a completely different reason. And one of the famous scenes in the movie, he's talking to his sister, and his sister's trying to persuade him to become a missionary. He says, Jenny, he says, God made me for a purpose. He made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. He understood why he'd been created. And when he did what he'd been created to do, and he did it for the right reason, he felt the pleasure of God. So do you feel the pleasure of God when you run, when you work, when you do what you do? The second workplace command that we can pull out of this, this scripture or these scriptures is to do your work wholeheartedly, to do your work with all your heart. Let's look at those scriptures again. Jehoshaphat says, thus you shall do in the fear of the Lord faithfully and wholeheartedly. Paul says the same thing. Do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. Do the will of God, talking about working in that context, from the heart. Now the word wholeheartedly that's used, the Jewish word, or not the Jewish word, the Hebrew word uh, in Second Chronicles is uh, actually two words. It's kebab shalem, and it means from the inner man. And so it's a broad concept. It means with all your mind, will, and emotions. And then Paul, the word he uses, the Greek word he uses is suke, the word from which we get the word psyche. Now, he could have used the word cardia, which just which means heart in a more narrow sense. Instead, he uses the word psyche, which means your whole being. So he's talking here about doing your work with all your mind, will, and emotions, fully engaged, wholeheartedly with all your strength, mind, will, and emotions. That's the way we're supposed to work. Those are the instructions given by Jehoshaphat, the same instructions given by Paul. And so we can assume that it applies to us as well. And can you think of anything else that we're supposed to do with all of our mind, will, strength, and emotions? That's right. The first commandment. We're supposed to love God with all of our strength, with all of our mind, will, right? All of that. So in other words, we're supposed to engage our work the same way we engage God. Now, that should tell you something about the importance of work. If work just existed because it was a paycheck for us, it might not, it might not require all of that. 
But if our work is the way by which God changes the world, it's the way that he redeems the world, then certainly we should be completely engaged in it, wholeheartedly. Now, being good, being good, uh, good Westerners, good Greeks, we're going to break down real quickly what it means to work wholeheartedly. Talk about mind, will, and emotions. So, with regard to your mind, what does it mean to be engaged in your work? Well, the first thing that Jehoshaphat says to the judges is consider what you're doing. In other words, have situational awareness. Understand the reason why you're doing what you're doing and be mentally engaged in it. Don't be thinking about something else. Don't be thinking about where you'd rather be or who you'd rather be with or what you'd rather be doing. But be engaged with what you're doing. I remember when we, were used to, when we used to meet in the theater. Y'all remember that Starbucks that was over there by the theater? Okay, well, so Cindy and I, my wife and I, we'd always stop at that Starbucks. It was kind of a, you know, ritual for us. Not a religious ritual, more of a, a caffeine ritual. Um, but we would stop, she'd get her latte, and I'd get my ice lemon pound cake in the morning. That's what I got every Sunday morning. And so we came through there one day, and uh, they didn't give us any napkins. And so I asked the drive-by barista, I said, can I have a napkin? She handed me 10. I mean, she just grabbed a handful and gave them to me. She was asleep at the wheel. She was not engaged in what she was doing. She just wasted nine napkins owned by Starbucks and paid for by Starbucks. And it didn't really meet my needs either because then I had to figure out what to do with them. I had to, next time I got in my car, I had to throw them away or whatever. Okay, and it may not seem like a big deal, but the point is she was asleep at the wheel. She was not engaged in her work. If she had been thinking about what she was doing, she would have thought, it makes no sense to give me 10. It's not what I asked for and it's a waste of money and time. When I was a server in college, some of you ever been a server in a restaurant? Okay, that is like the hardest job in the world. I mean, it's harder than being a lawyer, I'll just tell you. Um, you've got to be thinking all the time. You've, I mean, I would just like disappear and forget like about a table because I was so focused on two other tables. And then they're like, you know, where have you been? And not an easy job to do. But I got to where I could do it pretty well, but I still wasn't, I didn't have the situational awareness to really understand what my employer expected of me. And so they had a contest, and this contest was a sales contest um, where if whoever sold the most on a Friday, Saturday, or Sunday night, you'd get a gift card. And so that made me think, which I think was the purpose of the whole contest, it made me think about why I was doing what I was doing and how to do it better. And so I realized I never really asked people if they wanted a beer or a glass of wine before dinner. And I found out if you do that, the tab goes up like twice as much. And then I wasn't asking about dessert either. You know, we had this, this Mississippi mud pie. We probably bought it from Cisco or someplace. And, you know, I told nothing wrong with Cisco, you know, but it wasn't homemade. But, you know, I, would, I started really pushing that, like, hey, you want to try our famous Mississippi mud pie? You know, and it wasn't famous outside our restaurant, but, you know, they didn't know that. But they started buying it, you know, and they enjoyed it, you know. So, you know, provided a service for them. And I started winning this contest. And I'm pretty competitive, so that made me happy. But the point was, the point was, it got me thinking. It got me mentally engaged. How many of us do our jobs and we never really think about the big picture? We think, well, okay, I'm getting paid, so I just need to do what my boss tells me. You know, give them the reports when they want them, and then I'll get my paycheck. But you don't think, well, why is he asking me to do that? Or why is she asking me to do that? And what's the bigger picture here? What are we doing? What are we trying to accomplish? 
It means being mentally engaged. And then, of course, there's our will. And the will is really important because it's the horse that pulls the buggy. It's the force that overcomes the temptation to procrastinate. It's what keeps us at our desk when we're tempted to go home and quit. It's what keeps us trying when our mind and our emotions tell us that we can't do it or we're not good enough or we're not smart enough. It corrals and directs our mind and emotions and it manifests in words like diligence and discipline. It's what it looks like. And when it's supercharged by the Holy Spirit, it really becomes formidable. And without it, we become slaves to our emotions. If you wait until you are inspired to work, you will probably not work very much. You know, this is the problem with artists. You know, they have to be inspired uh, before they start painting or before they start writing. And it's it's not really true. You talk to great writers. I've read a lot of, uh, a lot of writers and write books on writing, and they'll tell you. They'll say that writing is a discipline. It's like anything else. You start to write, and then the inspiration follows. And that's the way it is with emotions. Emotions are terrible leaders, but they're great followers. But they're important. They're the most fickle of the three things we're talking about but they are important. Here's how you know they're important. Do you know which team wins most often in any major professional sports? Any major professional sport. Baseball, football, basketball. The home team. You ever think about that? It's true. Look at any statistics in any major sport. The home team usually wins. Why do they win? Because they've got the home crowd cheering for them. And it brings up their emotional level and makes them perform better. But when they're on the road, they score, and it's, you know, James Harden, you know, as the announcer says, you know. But at home, it's different. You know, everybody gets excited. It's because emotions matter. Now, they're not what's most important, but what the, what the Lord calls us to do is to be fully engaged in our work. And so that means mind, will, and emotions. That means you don't wait on your emotions. You go ahead and start. But what happens is if you use your will and you start and then you engage your mind, then the emotions follow. This happens to me all the time. When I'm struggling at work, I don't want to work. I've got a four or five hour project ahead. I jump into it. Don't really want to, but then my mind gets engaged. And then before you know it, I'm thinking, boy, I love doing this. I really love doing it. The emotion comes and then the inspiration comes. And the good news for you is it gets easier as you get older. I don't know why. It just does. I guess you get some faith. You realize if you start, it's going to get better. Now, like Greeks, we've been breaking these down into three different things and the categories like Westerners do and discussing them. But really, the Hebrews didn't look at stuff like this. They looked at things wholeheartedly uh, in the same way that they, they worked. They looked at things as a whole. So I want to look at a couple examples, and then we're going to close First and best is Jesus, working wholeheartedly, ministering all day, feeding 4,000, and then going up on the mountain to pray all night, and then seeing the disciples straying at the oars and then walking out to them. I mean, all in, wholeheartedly, completely engaged. John 13, verse 1, Jesus, knowing it was time to depart from the world to go to the Father, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. 
Jesus was all in to the end, fully engaged, working wholeheartedly. And then probably my favorite example is this scene from Chariots of Fire. you drop him, you'll never find another one like this. Was not the prettiest quarter I've ever seen, Mr. Little. Certainly the bravest. Come on, gently. So here's the question. When you run, when you work, do you feel his pleasure? Do you understand the reason why God's called you to do what you do and the reason your job exists? And understanding that, are you all in? Are you fully engaged in what you do? Because the work that you've been given is kingdom work. It's of primary importance to King Jesus. And it deserves nothing less than our full engagement, mind, will, and emotions. And can you imagine what the world would be like if Christians worked the way Eric Little ran? You could see the fear in Harold Abrams' eyes in the stands think, oh my gosh, I've got to run against this guy. Because he was all in. He ran for the right reason. Performed beyond his potential. And then when you do that as a Christian, empowered by the Holy Spirit, which adds another level. Could you imagine what it would be like if that's the way we really worked, if we were all in, did it for the right reasons, in the sincerity of our hearts, 
when we're fully engaged. People be like, I know they can't put that on their resume, but uh, is she a Christian? I've heard about those Christians. They work really hard. I want to hire me one of those. It's what the Lord expects. Not because he's a hard taskmaster, but because he's decided, as Jesus said, to gladly give us the kingdom. He wants to share the kingdom of God with us, and he does it by calling us into his service of reconciling the world to himself.